This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Educus, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Can you believe it? We're now in the year 1982 for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Seems like yesterday I was just talking about When You Wish Upon a Star and White Christmas and The Ballad of High Noon. And here we are in 1982. With a quick glance at the nominees, you would suggest that there's a lull in quality compared to the list of five from previous years, even looking at 1980 and 1981. As we go through the five nominees for 1982, it will be easy to say that the songs pale in comparison to the likes of Endless Love, Arthur's Theme, Fame, and 9 to 5. Whether that is really true or not is up to the subjective ears of you, the listener. But were these the best movie songs available in 1982? We'll be exploring that as well. One thing that stands out for the songs from 1982 is the historic three nominations for lyricist Alan and Marilyn Bergman. This marks the first time that songwriters were credited for three nominated songs in one year, demonstrating the immense popularity of the Bergmans. But it wasn't that way at the beginning of the 1980s. After writing the nominated song, The Last Time I Felt Like This in 1978, the Bergmans didn't publish a song until their three nominated tunes in 1982. There's no explanation for their lack of song contributions in that time, but they certainly made up for it in 1982. The first of the three nominated Bergman songs to go out into the world was If We Were In Love from the movie Yes, Giorgio. This marked the Hollywood feature film debut of celebrated tenor Luciano Pavarotti, who you will remember helped announce the song nominees of 1980 while he was visiting Hollywood to start his movie career. Yes, Giorgio was MGM's best offer for him, playing an opera singer who falls in love with his vocal therapist. Pavarotti took the role because he felt it had been too long since the world of opera had been explored in the movies. Plus, it made Mario Lanza a big star in the early 1950s, and perhaps Pavarotti's fame could cross over into the mainstream. But it didn't happen that way. Pavarotti became a punchline among the critics when Jess Giorgio came out in September 1982. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, two of the most popular film critics at the time, said on their TV show that the worst dialogue in a 1982 movie is found in Yes, Giorgio. Of course, Pavarotti sings a lot, but getting him in a food fight and sitting on a pie just doesn't help the movie. Pavarotti sings some of his operatic hits, including Nesom Dorma, and one English-language song that would be the Oscar nominee, If We Were In Love. As Giorgio... Pavarotti spends much of the movie trying to win over his therapist, named Pamela. He manages to soften her icy exterior and takes her on a balloon ride above the California wine country. This is accompanied by Pavarotti singing off-screen about the possibilities he and Pamela could have if she would allow love to happen.
skies be any bluer than they are? Would our smiles be any warmer, kiss be any sweeter if we were in love? And Dream more than we are dreaming If we were in love If we were in love You'd think we'd know it When people are in love They tend to show it The days Faster than they do Would I be more than I'm being See more than I'm seeing When I look at you The sun shines And he brighten up above If they wonder of a case It's as wonderful Just imagine how you'd love me, how I'd love you, if we were in Naturally, a soundtrack for Yes, Giorgio was released with many of the songs Pavarotti performed in the film. 
the soundtrack sales were good and probably helped Music Branch voters consider If We Were In Love as an Oscar nominee without having to sit through 50 minutes of the movie before hearing the song. I'm sure voters were hoping that giving this song a nomination would turn into a Pavarotti performance at the Academy Awards ceremony, which would be a big ratings grabber. It's not a great reason to nominate its song, but others have been nominated for much less. John Williams wrote the music for If We Were In Love, but he did not write the underscore for the film. Williams was in the prime of his career, having just completed the score for E.T. the Extraterrestrial and pretty much the most in-demand composer in Hollywood. It's not known how he came to be involved with writing If We Were In Love, though the Bergmans might have been given the assignment first, then asked Williams if he had some free time to help them with the melody. Williams and the Bergmans had worked together more than a decade earlier for the comedy Fitzwillie in 1967, writing the song Make Me Rainbows. Every composer in town would have jumped at the chance to write a song for Luciano Pavarotti, and you have to wonder if Williams saw any of the film before he said yes to the project. MGM paid $15 million to make Yes, Giorgio, and earned just a little more than $2 million in ticket sales. To call it a flop would be the understatement of the century. This was one of the biggest gambles of the year in Hollywood, and there were no winners. Pavarotti never made another feature film, but his star power never dwindled, especially with the birth of the three tenor singing group coming in about eight years. The next two Bergman songs came out on the same weekend, December 17, 1982. How they were hired to write a song for the movie Best Friends is easy to see. Norman Jewison was the director of this comedy about two screenwriting partners who have different ideas about marriage. Jewison was the director of The Thomas Crown Affair, which featured the Oscar-winning song The Windmills of Your Mind by the Bergmans and Michelle Legrand. Jewison brought Legrand and the Bergmans in for Best Friends to give the movie a romantic ballad. Jewison has said in many interviews that filming Best Friends was one of the most enjoyable experiences of his life. He spoke often of the easy chemistry between the film's lead stars, Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn, and having his Oscar-winning songwriters on hand surely made post-production a joy for Jewison. The nominated song that the Bergmans and Legrand wrote is called How Do You Keep the Music Playing, and it comes after Burt and Goldie's characters return from their two-week honeymoon trip to visit their parents. The relationship only got worse with each day, and when the married screenwriters return home to a torrential rainstorm, the song perfectly illustrates a marriage in decline. How do you keep the music playing?
each time you hear his name I know the way I feel for you it's now or never the more I love the more that I'm afraid that in your eyes The lyrics do well to describe what has happened in the movie, but the music by Michelle Legrand doesn't support those lyrics well enough to make the whole song memorable. There's another try at the song during the end credits, when Bird and Goldie realize they should not have gotten married, and that they will try to remain friends. The song becomes a duet now, giving us the answer to the song's title question. A relationship can last and be happy if you work hard at it, and be lovers as well as friends.
song is performed in the duet by James Ingram and Patty Austin. In February 1982, 10 months before Best Friends was released in theaters, James Ingram was a nominee for Best New Artist at the Grammy Awards, but lost to Sheena Easton. Ingram won the award for Best R&B Male Vocal for 100 Ways, which has become one of his signature songs in a list of great vocals over what will be a very long career. That made Ingram's stock price very high, and he used it to record a duet with Patty Austin called Baby Come To Me that was also a big hit. That song went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in spring 1982, and the Bergmans couldn't resist hiring Ingram and Austin to sing their romantic movie ballad. Patty Austin had been singing as a solo artist and backup singer since the mid-1950s and gave Ingram's career the boost it needed with these two duets in 1982. How Do You Keep the Music Playing was produced by Johnny Mandel, who was pivoting in the music business 16 years after receiving his final Oscar nomination and 17 years after his Oscar win for The Shadow of Your Smile. Mandel had been working with Quincy Jones as an arranger and was one of the arrangers of Ingram's 100 Ways. Michelle Legrand and the Bergmans wrote another original song for Best Friends called Talk About Love, which is heard during the long train ride sequence from California to New York. Most of the song is nearly impossible to hear over the sounds of the train and a lot of dialogue, and if I were in the Academy's music branch, I would have ruled the song ineligible because it's not a clearly audible performance. The third Bergman Song nomination of 1982 comes from Tootsie, the story of a male actor who poses as a woman on a TV soap opera in order to keep working. It's become one of the most beloved comedies of all time and one of Dustin Hoffman's most respected performances. I can't say that the nominated song is one of the lasting legacies of the movie, but it does hold up as an 80s love ballad. After Hoffman's character Michael Dorsey becomes Dorothy Michaels and gets the job on the soap opera, he falls in love with his co-star, Julie, played by Jessica Lange. They become friends, and Julie invites Dorothy to her father's farm in upstate New York. Seeing Julie away from the work environment causes Michael to see her in a more loving light, and that's illustrated by the song, It Might Be You.
Michael has been in a relationship with ditzy actress Sandy, but there was no indication of love there. And perhaps this is really the first time Michael has fallen in love. Stephen Bishop is the singing voice of Michael's thoughts, and the vocal helps legitimize the love story within this comedy. We hear the song again in the end credits, after Michael's dual role has been exposed and he has reconciled with Julie. At this point, the better song title would have been, It's Going to Be You. But I guess that isn't as catchy. The Bergmans wrote It Might Be You, as well as the peppy title song with composer Dave Grusin. By 1982, Grusin was already a Grammy winner for his contributions to the soundtrack for The Graduate, which incidentally starred Dustin Hoffman. Grusin contributed as a songwriter to several movies in those 15 years since, none of which were very outstanding. Grusin had written the score to Three Days of the Condor in 1975, which was directed by Sidney Pollack. When it came time to hire a composer for Tootsie, Pollack asked Grusin and Grusin said yes. 
Like their other two nominated songs in 1982, the Bergmans were brought on late to write songs for Tootsie, and they have counted It Might Be You as one of their favorite love songs. The fourth nominated song of 1982 is also a love ballad, and also written long after its film had finished production. The song is Up Where We Belong, featured in the end credits of the romantic drama An Officer and a Gentleman. Will Jennings, who was now looking to become an established movie songwriter after his Oscar nomination for People Alone in 1980, was brought in by director Taylor Hackford after composer Jack Nietzsche had recorded the score in an effort to find a song in Nietzsche's composition. After screening the movie, Jennings found the right melody in the tune he heard in the final scene, when Richard Gere's Zack takes Deborah Winger's Paula and literally sweeps her off her feet away from her dead-end job at the local factory. Driven by an electric guitar, Jennings found that lyrics fit perfectly to the music, and the song that immediately follows the emotional finale continues to employ that theme.
hang on to used to be Live their lives looking behind Long. There are mountains in our way, but we climb a step every day. Love lifted us up where we belong. speaking of being on a mountain high with eagles, is the highlight of the song. Jennings has said that the lyric means striving for the top, and in this case, it's been Paula's love for Zach that helped him graduate from aviation school. Jack Nietzsche and his future wife, Buffy St. Marie, collaborated on parts of the score for An Officer and a Gentleman, with St. Marie helping out with the love theme for the film. Her contribution was not enough, though, to allow her to share in the original score nomination that Nietzsche got for that movie. But her contribution to the melody for the love song in An Officer and a Gentleman was significant enough to get her a nomination for original song. St. Marie was born and raised on the Cree Reservation in Saskatchewan, Canada, becoming the first indigenous person to be nominated for an Academy Award. She was not a professionally taught musician having learned on her own as a child and honing her craft in her 20s after graduating from college with degrees in Oriental philosophy and education. She was instrumental in the Vietnam protests of the mid-1960s, writing the song Universal Soldier as a protest song that wasn't popular when she sang it in 1964, but gathered steam over the years when others recorded it. It's not a surprise hearing Jennifer Warren's on this song. She's recorded three Oscar-nominated songs in four years, the first one being the Oscar winner It Goes Like It Goes in 1979, and the second one being One More Hour in 1981. But the story of getting the Englishman Joe Cocker involved in Big Gamble by Paramount Pictures. The executives at Paramount persuaded director Taylor Hackford to give Warrens a crack at the song, which at the time of its creation was going to be a solo piece. Warrens had just recorded the Oscar-dominated One More Hour for the Paramount film Ragtime, but Hackford thought her voice wasn't right for the gritty, working-class lyrics that Jennings had written. To ease the blow, Warrens suggested that the song be a duet, and the gruffy Joe Cocker be her duet partner. Warrens had wanted to sing with Cocker for many years, and finally had the opportunity. 
Many music executives thought the song would die an agonizing death because the two singers didn't sound good together. Others just didn't like the song. But no one else had a better option, and once it was released, it became a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 in November 1982. It took about five months for the song to climb to this mountain high, but it gave Jennifer Warnes and Joe Cocker their first Billboard number one song. The recording that played on the radio was vocally different from the film version and featured a verse before the first chorus. Time goes by 
Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens went on a media tour to promote Up Where We Belong after its release in fall 1982. Solid Gold, the variety music show that tried to be the competitor to American Bandstand, was their first live performance. Followed by an appearance on Saturday Night Live in February 1983, just in time for Oscar nomination voting. This is the first instance I can find where a song vying for an Academy Award was performed on Saturday Night Live. And it not only helped keep it in the minds of Oscar voters, but helped sell records. They would also perform it that same month at the Grammy Awards, where Cocker and Warrens were nominated for Best Pop Performance. At that point, final Oscar voting was about to happen, and any Academy voter watching the Grammys that night surely had an impression made on them about Up Where We Belong. The fifth nominated song of 1982 was also a big hit with the public, and the film was a big part of that. The movie is Rocky III, the continuing story of Rocky Balboa's quest to become the greatest boxer despite all the odds against him. This time, Rocky faces Mr. T in his quest to remain the heavyweight champion of the world. That battle is set up in the first seven minutes of the film, after we get a reminder of the outcome of the climactic fight that ended Rocky II. After Rocky holds up the heavyweight crown, we get another Rocky montage, and another Oscar-nominated song playing over it. This time, Rocky is seen winning fight after fight, becoming a celebrity and enjoying life with his family. Meanwhile, Mr. T's Clubber Lang, is training to rise up the boxing ranks so he can face Rocky. The song we hear is mostly a song about Clubber Lang and his no-hold-barred attempt to become the new heavyweight champion. The song is Eye of the Tiger, a rock song that pulses with urgency in its bass piano chords and electric guitar.
The title of the song was inspired by words told to Rocky by Apollo Creed in order to convince Rocky to reclaim the title that Rocky lost to Clubber. Jim Peterick, one of the writers of the song Eye of the Tiger, said Stallone is, quote, a genius with dialogue. Songs are nothing more than dialogue set to music as far as I'm concerned. Stallone has a good ear for a hook, end quote. Now, when we fought, you had that eye of the tiger, man, the edge. And now you've got to get it back. And the way to get it back is to go back to the beginning. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe we could win it back together. After that rousing speech to convince Rocky to go for one more fight, there's no reprise of Eye of the Tiger. We only hear it again much later during the end credits, losing out on a chance to back up the dialogue. Bill Conti is back to write the score for Rocky III, but he had no involvement with the creation of Eye of the Tiger. That responsibility went to two members of the rock band Survivor, who performed the song in the movie. Guitarist Frankie Sullivan and keyboard player Jim Peterick wrote the song at the request of Sylvester Stallone, who was the star, writer, and director of the movie. Rocky III would not have had an original song if Queen had allowed Stallone to use their 1980 hit song, Another One Bites the Dust, during the first montage of the movie. Though the Queen song would have worked very well, having an original song play over this montage gives it its own identity. Plus, the first two Rocky movies were identified by the presence of Gonna Fly Now in its training montages, and keeping the tradition going with an original song was going to help everyone involved, especially Survivor. Survivor hadn't really made much of an impact on the music industry in their first three years together, and the band was lucky that Sylvester Stallone was recommended to them by their record label for Rocky III. Eye of the Tiger was one of the biggest songs of 1982, spending six weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in July and August 1982, the same time that Rocky III was on its way to making $125 million at the box office. The music video that Survivor made for Eye of the Tiger was a big hit on MTV, which had been on the air for about a year and was wildly successful among teens and young adults. The video shows Survivor walking to an abandoned warehouse with abandoned cars to perform the song, very similar to the music videos of the time that needed to show the artists that were previously only heard on their records. There is another training montage about 35 minutes into the movie, when Rocky agrees to fight Clubber. There is a song played underneath this back and forth between Rocky's training and Clubber's training, and it's called Pushin'. Connie wrote the song with Sylvester Stallone's brother Frank, and most of the lyrics are hardly heard in the film version, which might have convinced the Academy to deem this song ineligible for award consideration. Even if it were eligible, I'm sure the Academy was turned off by the heavy disco field, which in 1982 was starting to not be a good thing.
Obviously, nepotism played a role in Frank Stallone getting to write a song for his older brother's film, but Frank had been angling to be a successful songwriter for a couple of years and was lucky that his brother had the opportunity for him. Besides getting on the Rocky III soundtrack, Pushin' did not get much promotion. Survivor's Eye of the Tiger was easily the top song of the movie. The year 1982 was a big year for cross-dressing in the movies. Tootsie was the biggest hit of them all, and there was a prestige movie called The World According to Garp that featured John Lithgow as a transgender former football player who stays at the home of the feminist icon played by Glenn Close in her film debut. The movie was a big hit, but didn't feature any original songs. The third movie was more like Tootsie in tone, especially given that the lead character changes genders in order to be a successful entertainer. That movie was Victor Victoria, starring Julie Andrews as a woman pretending to be a man who is a drag queen. The movie was based on a 1933 German movie, and Blake Edwards decided to not only make it another one of his slapstick comedies, but to finally give his wife Julie Andrews the musical film she had needed to revive her career. The result gave Andrews her first Oscar nomination in 27 years and featured six original songs by Oscar winners Henry Mancini and Leslie Brickus. This was the second collaboration for Mancini and Brickus, the first being the theme song for the 1967 Audrey Hepburn film Two for the Road. Nearly 25 years had passed since that first teaming, and according to Mancini in his autobiography, Brickus was one of the best collaborators. At this point, Brickus felt like his career was in severe decline. When he was asked to work with Mancini for Victor Victoria, he jumped at the chance to work with people he considered longtime friends and excellent filmmakers. The writing of the songs for Victor Victoria was a pleasant and painless process, Brickus wrote in his memoir, Pure Imagination. They all seemed to easily spring from Edward's screenplay and help further along each character's story. It's impossible to pick just one standout song from Victor Victoria, so let's go with two, both sung by Julie Andrews. The first is the song that introduces her character Victor to the world as a female impersonator called La Jazz Hot. What really makes this song so incredible is not really Brickus's lyrics, but Mancini's music that allows Andrews to show off her eight-octave range. She has to sing low like a man, then put in a couple of high notes, especially at the end. When you play me la jazz hot, baby, I'll hold my soul together. Don't know whether it's morning or night. Only know it's sounding right. So come on in and play me la jazz hot. A much quieter song is Crazy World, built on the love theme Mancini wrote for Andrews and the mob boss played by James Garner. 
It's played on the radio as an instrumental during one of their dialogue scenes. Then Victor sings it on stage one night. Crazy world Full of crazy contradictions Like a child First you drive me wild And then you win my heart With your wicked art One minute tender Gentle then temperamental as a summer storm Just when I believe your heart's getting warmer You're cold and you're cruel And I, like a fool, try to Every day the same old roller coaster ride. But I've got my pride, I won't give in. Even Either one of these songs should have been a slam dunk to be nominated for an Oscar, but neither made the final cut. Leslie Brickus tries to explain why in his memoir. For that one year, Brickus writes, the Academy inexplicably changed the music branch rules, allowing Henry and myself to elect to be eligible for either best song or best score, but not both as I had been in previous years for both Dr. Doolittle and Scrooge, when I was nominated in both categories. It was a tricky decision, as we felt we had two likely song nominations in La Jazz Hot and Crazy World. We chose to go for Best Score, since it contained both those songs and other stuff we liked a lot. No one ever satisfactorily explained this eccentric Academy ruling to us, though the charming then-president of the Academy, Richard Kahn, did attempt to when Hank and I bumped into him at a friend's dinner party one night. We listened politely and decided that neither he nor the Academy quite understood the new ruling themselves. So I can see where Brickus is tripped up by the wording of the rules for music in 1982. There is one clause in the qualification section that states, quote, 
no submission shall be eligible in more than one category, end quote. But it does not specifically state that any song that is part of an original song score can't be also nominated for original song. I would imagine the new meaning of the rule was meant to keep composers from trying to get their score into the original score category and original song score category in the same year. If it really meant that a song and a song score couldn't be nominated for the same film, it was indeed a crazy rule that started in 1981 with no protests that year. It surely did hurt the chances that Mancini and Brickus had to earn a chance at another songwriting Oscar, and it robs at least one of their songs of worthy recognition. Another musical that wasn't as immediately successful as Victor Victoria but found a big following later was the Pink Floyd movie The Wall based on songs written by the British rock band. The one song that has found a major life outside the film is the song Another Brick in the Wall, which was written in three parts by Roger Waters to portray his character's frustration of life throughout the film. Part one is pretty good, but it's part two that has become the music standard. It's sung as Waters' character Pink is dealing with abuse by a schoolteacher. During the song, we see children going through a conveyor belt that eventually grinds them into meat. The song ends with the children rebelling against the teacher and burning down the school. In a film that requires a lot of attention and patience on the part of the viewer, this is the highlight of an otherwise disjointed film directed by Alan Parker. We don't need no thought control Dark sarcasm in the classroom Teacher leave them kids alone Songs for the movie were not eligible by Academy Rules because the songs were written and recorded for an album long before the film was officially conceived. So even a memorable rock song such as Another Brick in the Wall could not have had a chance at doing what the Beatles and the Who couldn't manage, get an original song Oscar nomination. Also missing out on a song nomination was Giorgio Moroder, whose song Cat People didn't miss out because of rule confusion but perhaps because the Academy just didn't like it. 
The song comes from the horror movie of the same name about a woman who has the power to change into big cats after having sex. Yeah, not really the type of movie that attracts Oscar voters. Marauder, though, was already an Oscar-winning composer and was having a great career writing and producing hits for Donna Summer and others. This time, his melody from part of his score had lyrics by David Bowie, who turned it into a modest hit, spending a few weeks on the Billboard charts. adaptations of Broadway musicals weren't as popular in the 1980s as they were in the 1960s and 1970s. Studios preferred to take the big budgets used for splashy musicals and put them into science fiction movies or adventure epics in the 1970s. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas opened on Broadway in 1978 and was still playing at the 46th Street Theater when the film version made its debut in July 1982. Dolly Parton wrote two original songs for the film version, but they were cut for time. All of the songs heard in the film were not new for the movie, including the one that has since become one of the biggest pop songs in history. I Will Always Love You was written and recorded by Dolly Parton in 1973 as a farewell song to her business partner Porter Wagoner as she embarked on a solo career. In The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Dolly sings the song to Burt Reynolds as she decides to break up with him to save his promising career as a politician. If I should stay Well, I would only be in your way And so Step of the way And I
bring up the song here because many have believed that it was written specifically for the movie version of the best little horror house in Texas, but it was not, and therefore not eligible for the Academy Award. Another song that has become more famous in a different version than the film version was That's What Friends Are For, one of three songs Burt Bacharach and Carol Bayer Sager wrote for the Michael Keaton comedy Night Shift. The song was performed for the film version by British pop star Rod Stewart. The song was not a hit in 1982, but three years later, the version of That's What Friends Are For that has endured was performed by Dionne Warwick, Elton John, Stevie Wonder, and Gladys Knight. That version earned back Rack and Bayer Saker the Grammy for Song of the Year in 1987. Future Oscar nominees Eye of the Tiger, If We Were in Love, and Up Where We Belong were in the running for the Golden Globe for Best Original Song at the January 29, 1983 ceremony, as was Cat People and the title song for the movie Making Love. That movie dealt with a straight man coming to terms with the fact that he is gay, and the song is about finding intimacy in a relationship that goes beyond the sexual aspect. The song was yet another contribution to the movies by Burt Bacharach and Carol Bayer Sager in 1982. The two had just been married, 
so there was some realism to the song that they co-wrote with frequent collaborator Bruce Roberts. Close to our feelings, we touch again, we love again. Remember when we thought our hearts were never meant, and we're all the better for each other. There's more to love. In the end, it was Up Where We Belong that took the first movie song award of the year. But the momentum turned somewhat in favor of Eye of the Tiger a month later at the Grammy Awards, where the Rocky III song was nominated for the prestigious Song of the Year with non-movie songs such as Ebony and Ivory and the winning song Always On My Mind, sung by but not written by Willie Nelson. But Survivor did not go home empty-handed. The group won Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group, which would be the only Grammy nomination for a a group that will churn out great 80s hits such as I Can't Hold Back, The Search Is Over, and High On You. Up Where We Belong took home the award for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group for Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens. That beat out the Paul McCartney-Stevie Wonder duet Ebony and Ivory, as well as the eventual winner of Record of the Year, Rosanna, by Toto, as well as Maneater by Hall & Oates. Across the Atlantic Ocean, the 36th Annual British Film Awards was handing out its first BAFTA Award for Best Song in March 1983, and the only Oscar nominee from 1982 on that list was Eye of the Tiger. Sometimes the eligibility period for the BAFTAs and the Oscars don't match, which is why Up Where We Belong and the title song from Tootsie will compete at the 37th annual ceremony in 1984. Winning the first BAFTA for best song was Another Brick in the Wall, not a surprise given that The Wall was a bigger hit in the United Kingdom and was conceived by a British rock band. When the Academy Awards were ready to be presented on April 11, 1983, Eye of the Tiger and Up Where We Belong had the upper hand over the other three nominees based on previous award shows. One of the highlights of the show was finally seeing Jennifer Warren performing on stage after being denied that chance for her two previous nominated songs that she originated on film. This time, she and Joe Cocker sang Up Where We Belong, joined by members of the University of Southern California NROTC, 
dancing with female partners. Their performance was probably a little bit sweeter since they had Grammys for the song on their mantles. Two other songs had their original performers that night as well, though not accompanied by any dancers. Patty Austin and James Ingram sang How Do You Keep the Music Playing, and Stephen Bishop, with his oversized glasses, sang It Might Be You. Instead of asking Survivor to sing Eye of the Tiger, Academy producer Howard Coach decided that the Academy Awards that year wasn't the place for the first rock band to perform on the show. So it was up to the R&B group The Temptations to put their spin on the song. Just as quickly as they welcomed him, Hollywood spit out Luciano Pavarotti after the failure of Yes, Giorgio and didn't bother asking him to sing If We Were In Love at the Oscars. That went to Melissa Manchester, who had performed before on the telecast and gave a more traditional rendition of the song instead of the operatic flair that Pavarotti used. That evening also paid tribute to Irving Berlin, who had won only one Academy Award but was still regarded as one of the best songwriters of all time. Unlike the tribute to the recently deceased Harry Warren the previous year, Irving Berlin was 94 years old and still very much alive, so it's likely he watched the tribute from his home. The presentation included 15 of Berlin's best songs, but oddly did not include his Oscar-winning song White Christmas, which was still the best-selling record of all time. This was the second time that Berlin was saluted at the Oscars, but there's no record of the songs that were performed on the 1944 show. As is the normal custom, the nominees for original song have to wait until almost the end of the ceremony to get their awards. The nominees for the original song score Oscar only had to sit through four categories before learning that the Academy was offering their apologies to Henry Mancini and Leslie Brickus for the confusing music rules. Victor Victoria won the Song Score Award, and it was Mancini's first Oscar in 20 years. Leslie Brickus didn't attend the ceremony in 1968 when he won the original song Oscar for Talk to the Animals, but he was there in 1983. He used his acceptance speech to make a witty crack at Mancini, calling him Henry Henrietta, in reference to their film's title. It got a laugh and a nervous chuckle from Mancini. And by the way, Pavarotti was a no-show at the Oscars, but his future three-tenors friend, Placido Domingo, gave the Oscars to Mancini and Brickus. Brickus said he and Mancini didn't bother staying for the rest of the show, so they had to read in the papers the next day to find out who won original song. As described by co-host Walter Matthau, 
the cutest thing to come from Australia since the koala bear, Olivia Newton-John got right down to business, read the nominees, and announced that Up Where We Belong won the battle of the number one songs. Buffy St. Marie became the first indigenous person to win an Oscar in any category, and it was the second year in a row that a married couple won for writing a song. Nietzsche and Jennings both mentioned Happy Go Day, who continued a very successful streak of promoting and marketing Oscar-winning songs for Paramount. He's the one who booked those song performances on Solid Gold and Saturday Night Live. Up Where We Belong was the 12th Oscar-winning song for Paramount, and the first since Call Me Irresponsible in 1963. The studio was still the king of Oscar songs, with MGM a long way back with Seven. And here's one final little history tidbit about Up Where We Belong. It's the first Oscar-winning duet in 23 years. You'd have to go all the way back to 1959 and high hopes for the last duet to win the Oscar, when Frank Sinatra and Eddie Hodges sang about ambitious ants and rams. Duets certainly were nominated for the Oscar in those intervening years, but usually one per year. In 1982, there were two duets vying for the Oscar. That other duet, How Do You Keep the Music Playing, turned out to be a big boost for its singers, James Ingram and Patty Austin. They received their second Grammy nomination as a duo for the song, though they lost to Every Breath You Take from the Police at the 1984 Grammys. Ingram was at the top of his game in the mid-1980s, writing the song PYT for Michael Jackson's seminal album Thriller in November 1982, as well as the duet with Michael McDonald called Yamo Be There which gave Ingram his second Grammy in 1985. Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes performed Up Where We Belong often in live concerts over the next 30 years. Their final performance of the song was in 2013 in Berlin, where Joe Cocker was being awarded the Golden Camera for his body of work. The night included a performance of probably the best-selling song of his career, Up Where We Belong, and it would turn out to be the last time the two of them sang it live. Cocker died of lung cancer the following year, and Warrens has said that it was one of the great musical pairings ever. That's up for debate, but there is no arguing that putting the gruff Cocker with the velveting Warrens was a gamble that really paid off. The year 1982 was the last year that Burt Bacharach would make a significant contribution to the movies. He continued to stay busy through the 1980s and 1990s, all the way into the 21st century with some Grammy-winning projects. He and Carol Bayer Sager continued to work together until their divorce in 1991, and Bayer Sager will continue to earn Oscar nominations after they split. Bacharach died February 8, 2023 at 94 years old, having written some of the best songs in pop music history, and as a trailblazer for movie songs in the late 1960s, helping bring a pop sensibility to them that the Academy could appreciate and welcome. Well, this has been a pretty good year for movie songs. I know I said at the beginning this might have been a low year, but nah, it was pretty good. We're heading into the 50th year of the Academy Award for the Best Original Song. And even if the Academy itself doesn't celebrate the occasion... We certainly will be on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. I'm very excited for this episode, and I hope you'll join me to hear the five nominated songs and learn about the stories behind their creations. Before I go, 
I want to thank Carrie Moore for sponsoring this episode. Thanks as always to all of you for singing along with me on the Best Song Podcast. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.